<clears throat> it's 90.1. KZSU. Stanford. <laughs> the human. State of the human. On June 5, 2013, The Guardian published an article called NSA Collecting Phone Records of Millions of Verizon Customers Daily. It was the first published version of the Edward Snowden leaks, and it blew a locked door wide open. Two days later, June 7th, President Barack Obama was giving a press conference about his health care plan. And he took one question. I'm going to take one question. That question was not about choosing your primary care provider. Uh, Mr. President, could you please react to the reports of uh, secret government surveillance of phones and internets? And can you also assure Americans that the government, your government, doesn't have some massive secret database of all their personal online information and activities? President Obama answered this question in a pretty interesting way. He said, well, we're not listening to your telephone calls. That's not what this program's about. We're looking at the metadata of your phone calls. What the intelligence community is doing is looking at phone numbers and durations of calls. They are not looking at people's names, and they're not looking at content. But by sifting through this so-called metadata, they may identify potential leads with respect to folks who might engage in terrorism. Now, since this statement, two things have come out. First, the metadata that you generate with your phone, which numbers your phone number calls, when, for how long, and how often, that information is very revealing. It's easy to tell who you are, what relationships are important to you, when you develop new relationships. It's even really easy to infer very personal things, like medical conditions. Second, the government has some capability, and is building more capability, to record, store, and access the actual contents of emails and phone calls around the world. Right now, this is mostly happening to communications outside the United States. They've got access to the phone conversations of everyone in the Bahamas, for example. They're not supposed to do this to domestic communications. But every time you communicate internationally or call or email someone while you're outside the U.S., there's a chance that's getting recorded, too. So the U.S. government is collecting and analyzing all your phone metadata and maybe some of your email and phone content. What does this mean? It means, sure, there's no guy in a gray jacket eavesdropping on your conversation with your sister. But there doesn't need to be, because there are systems collecting most of the useful information about that phone call anyway, and possibly systems that are saving the contents of the call to listen to later. In other words, every phone conversation and every email you make is, or could be about to become, data. Lots and lots and lots of data. Of course, this isn't something just the NSA does. Facebook and Google and other tech companies make their money off of tracking, quantifying, and predicting your every move. In the commercial space, your attention, where you put it, for how long, what it leads to, becomes data. Think about that. 
where you are pointing your mind, where all of us are pointing our minds, gets tracked and processed for analysis. These companies are not only quantifying obvious behaviors like demographics and buying and selling patterns, they are quantifying and analyzing our attention. Our consciousness is becoming datafied. And we do the same thing to ourselves. I tell my phone where I go running, even how long I sleep at night and what kind of sleep phase I'm in for how long. And I do it because it's useful. Having this data can help me see patterns in my activity that I never would have noticed. But the more we do this, the more our identities seem to feel tied to these numbers. We're datafying ourselves. This is KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. You're listening to State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Kate Nelson. Each week, we choose a common human experience, like listening or lying, and bring you stories that explore and deepen that experience. Today, our show is called Datafying. We generate data with every mouse click, every phone conversation, even, as you'll hear later in this show, every breath. And today on our show, we're asking, what can we learn from seeing ourselves as data? And what is lost in translation? In our first story, what data reveals about history. We go back a couple of centuries to hear about the man who first turned men into metadata. In our second story, what data exposes about ourselves. A computer science student at Stanford has seen what other people can see of his own data, and he doesn't like it, so he takes action. In our third story, a poet Googles the last names of the family she is sitting next to on a plane, and moments later, she's in love. In our fourth story, how data gets into the air you breathe and saves your life. In our fifth and final story, the data has a mind of its own. Stay with us. First up, Stanford master's student Jess Peterson talks to Professor Dan Rosenberg about one of the first people to try and datafy history, Joseph Priestley. For a while now, I've been thinking about my experiences as data points. A few years ago, I was a tour guide at Stanford. As part of my training, I had to memorize a bunch of things about the school. I've been going to Stanford for a few years, but some of these tour guide facts actually shocked me. For example, even though I felt like most of the people I met were engineers, the data in my training book told me that only 30% of Stanford students studied engineering. Another surprise? Only 40% of the student body was white. I'm white, but I'd never realized that the activities and social groups I participated in were much more heavily white than the overall Stanford population. As I flipped through my training manual, I realized my idea of Stanford was completely distorted. It was eye-opening. I saw how much my ideas about my school, like who went to it and what they studied, had been shaped by my own experiences. And I realized how easy it was to confuse how I experienced the world with how it actually is. And it was data summarized with percentages and stats that showed me this. You could say I was having a Joseph Priestley moment. Because it turned out, my experience in tour guide training, it was a sort of echo of a moment 250 years ago, a moment that changed how people thought about information. 
and history. And it all started with a man named Joseph Priestley. One of the most famous people in 18th century England. That's Dan Rosenberg. I teach history at the University of Oregon. I first heard about Priestley from Dr. Rosenberg, and he thinks Priestley's story can help us understand how data can change the way we see the world. But first, the man, Priestley. Priestley was one of those Renaissance man types, sort of like Ben Franklin. One of three people who discovered oxygen, the founder of the Unitarian movement in religion. He also wrote a widely read book called Lectures on History and General Policy. Never had a thought he didn't publish. Priestley was a man living in a time that, in some ways, was strangely similar to our own. The scientific revolution had given birth to a new way of gathering facts, experimentation, and all this new information was getting overwhelming. The feeling of novelty that we have when encountering the problem of data, we're not the first people to have this feeling. In the middle of the 18th century, there was a new sense that information was piling up. It was in this climate that Joseph Priestley did something which you might say, changed history. We think of him as a great scientist because he discovered oxygen. But in the 1760s, he was inducted into the Royal Society not for the discovery of oxygen, but for the design of the Chartered Biography. You could say Priestley was inducted into the Royal Society of London for having invented the timeline. The timeline. You know, names and events laid out on a grid, going from left to right. Boston Tea Party, 1773. Declaration of Independence signed, 1776. That sort of thing. It might seem totally obvious to represent and organize events like that, but someone had to think it up. Dr. Rosenberg says Priestley was the first person to do it in a way that we recognize today. A monument in the history of data representation. And it changed the way people thought about history. Priestley called his timeline a chart of biography. It was a map of all human achievements since 1200 BC. You can Google it and find pictures, but I'll try to describe it to you. First, it's big. Two feet by three feet in size. On the bottom is a line with a bunch of dates, like any timeline you've ever seen, going from 1200 BC to about 1800 AD, Priestley's time. Above the year line, there's six horizontal stripes, bands a couple of inches wide. Each one corresponds to a different category of achievement. Different areas of biography, statesmen and warriors, natural scientists, poets and philosophers, and so forth. And inside all those big strips of time, you see a bunch of tiny names. And I mean really tiny. Even a huge figure like Isaac Newton is one name among hundreds. Same for Copernicus or Julius Caesar or anybody else. Because even when you get relatively close to Priestley's chart, it's quite hard to make out the names. Priestley had a very amazing description. Priestley said, from a distance, the chart looks like so many small straws floating on the surface of an immense river. This sense of time being a river and individuals being small straws, it was most obvious in the science part of the chart. If you look at the science category, you see how scientists' names are really dense in certain periods. You see a great density of important thinkers in the classical period. Then you see an explosive emergence uh, in the Renaissance. And then after the Renaissance, as you move into the Enlightenment, you see more and more and more. And Priestley's argument will be, we've reached a point where um, more is different 
there's so much science and there's so much new scientific communication that this um, wave-like pattern will be replaced by an exponential curve of scientific progress which can never be halted. Instead of an ebb and flow, some periods dense with scientists and others sparse, growth builds on itself. Especially after the Renaissance, that period starting in 1300 when scientific discoveries just exploded. And this, says Dr. Rosenberg, is exactly the point Priestley wanted to make. Just by looking at the chart, you know part of what Priestley's argument is. You know that from Priestley's point of view, the history of science and the history of thought and the history of imagination is really the history of all of humanity, not just great individuals. In other words, progress isn't about individuals, it's about groups. In one sense, we know this. We know science builds on itself. Isaac Newton even said that he stood on the shoulders of giants. But Priestley thought about this a little differently. He thought the timeline was most interesting if you just ignored the names altogether. If you instead thought of scientific discoveries being from generations of scientists, not individual people. And this makes sense if you think about Priestley's own life. One of his main accomplishments, besides the timeline, was the discovery of oxygen. But he wasn't the first to isolate it. That was a Swedish guy named Carl Schiele. But Priestley published first and promoted his ideas better. And it was actually a third guy named Lavoisier who was the first to call it oxygen. All of this happened in the period of a few years. Who discovered oxygen? None of them, and all of them. I think it's human nature to focus on individuals. Maybe it's an easier story to understand. But after learning about Joseph Priestley, I've realized that's not really how things work. I've realized it's kind of dumb to say that one person discovered anything. If you think about it as solving a big puzzle, the person we call the discoverer is just the one who figures out the final puzzle piece. A bunch of people made that discovery possible, putting all the pieces in place, but none of them can really take credit for it. In other words, when you put us all together, none of us is that important, or all of us are. That story was produced by Jess Peterson, a master's student at Stanford. The music was by Jared C. Ballow, Ergo Fismiz, Dexter Britton, and Circus Marcus. Next up, we return to Data Today. Munir Teo, a sophomore at Stanford, talks to a Stanford computer science student, we'll call him Kyle, who doesn't want anyone to see his data. But hiding yourself from the internet today is almost impossible. So I remember the first time I hopped on the internet, it was on a Windows 98 machine. It was a Dell white tower when they were still making beige boxes. And I visited yahoo.com and a pop-up came up that was blinking and had a picture of the coolest computer I'd ever seen. It had LEDs and uh, a fancy hard drive and it was fast. And all that it said was, congratulations, you've been selected to win this, this free computer. All you have to do is provide your information. And it asked for my name, 
my address, my phone number, my email address, my parents' names, you know, my brothers and sisters' names. And at that point, I thought that it would be a fine compromise to share this information because I was going to get a free computer. So I did. And I remember submitting it and then running upstairs to tell my mother that I had just won the computer of my dreams. It never arrived, of course. And um, somewhere from then to now, I've learned my lesson. This is Kyle. That's not his real name, but it's what we're going to call him. Because if we used his real name, then it could end up on the internet. And Kyle doesn't want that. In fact, he's devoted an astonishing amount of time and thought to keeping his name, his picture, and all his data off the internet. In a perfect world, you would just see no results. And you wouldn't get any information as to whether I even exist as a human being. So searching my name would yield nothing. Kyle has a lot of ways to do this. Ways to scrape old traces of himself from the internet. Ways to avoid leaving new traces. A lot of it is fancy computer stuff. He's a computer science major. But a good part involves just emailing webmasters, the people in charge of websites, and saying, hey, take my data off your website. Things like my mile time in high school that was posted because, you know, some athletic website does it. And it was because it was fast, it's because everyone got posted, you know, just to be clear. But getting rid of that, you know, here's just a place where my name appears online. I don't get any good out of that. So let's get rid of it. sure where this obsession with privacy came from. But when he originally told this story, he also happened to tell another one. A story that makes his obsession a little bit easier to understand. It happened when Kyle was in middle school. My family was returning on a Sunday morning from uh, breakfast at Hobie's. It's a restaurant kind of by our house. And I was in a car with my dad driving in the backseat with my sister. And we were driving up to our home and in the driveway, there was a green Jeep Cherokee parked. And a man I had never seen before was loading my printer into the back of his car. And the first thing, and I remember this so vividly, thinking back at that entire experience, is that he was wearing uh, like bright green surgical gloves. And that struck me as very strange. There's no reason why someone should be wearing gloves. You know, it wasn't so much like he's taking my printer, but why is he wearing gloves in my driveway? That wasn't the last time Kyle had his house burglarized. A few years later, it happened again. And everything that the first guy didn't take um, was taken. And it was because our home was under construction at the time, and we were living on the basement floor, and the first floor was, you know, all torn up down to the uh, uh, the studs. And what they had done was just entered through the exposed top floor of our home and then, you know, violated our, our living space. I remember the first experience of walking into my room was before I realized that things were missing was just a sensation that my room smelled funny and it smelled like sweat and not my own. You just feel so violated, not so much that these things are taken from you because a lot of it could be replaced. It was just someone else having been inside of your room. 10, 15 years later, that's the one that I think about, that someone else was there and I'll never have known kind of the extent to what they did. 
tells this story to webmasters because after the burglar got out of jail, Kyle's family didn't want him to know where they lived, so they tried to keep their private information off the internet. But there's another reason Kyle tells the story. It's because that sense of being exposed, of having a stranger creeping around in his private things, that, for Kyle, is a pretty good metaphor of life on the internet. Of course, Kyle doesn't have a Facebook or a Twitter or any social media accounts, but he does have a lot of fake email addresses. He admits he's a tad obsessive about this whole privacy thing, but it's because he really doesn't want strangers monkeying around with his data. He says it's like a game he's playing. He wants to win. But has he? I checked. I typed Kyle's real name into Google. And I got hits. The top eight results? Kyle for Stanford Senate. Kyle quoted in the Yale Herald. Kyle listed in Stanford's People Search. If Kyle's trying to keep his name off the internet, well, he hasn't exactly done that. Which might make you think that Kyle's lost the game. But he sees it differently. I've, I think just tracking my progress kind of over the years, I've won. If you want to quantify that by like in a year time, whether the results for Vsalometer has gone up or down on Google, I think I've been able to, to have a negative impact each year, year over year. I think that I'll look back and be like, okay, cool. I'm glad I got all those little wins because now when I search my name and I'm 50 years old, there's nothing. And that makes it worth it to you. Yeah, yeah, that'll make it worth it. But Kyle is a long way from 50 years old. And if he slips up, he'll go from winning to losing. So he has to stay vigilant. He has to stay in the game. Once you start playing it, you're committed. You know, so it's it's not something that you can take breaks from. And it's a game that I don't think I'll ever stop playing. Ever really? Ever really. That story was produced by Nuno Teo and Charlie Mintz. Music was by Rod Hamilton, Pork Secret, Poddington Bear, and Marcel Piquel. You're listening to State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. Today, our show is called Datafying. We're asking what seeing ourselves as data can teach us about ourselves, and what gets lost in translation. Our last story was about someone who's tried to rid the internet of information about him because he's worried about who is watching. In our next story, Stanford sophomore Jack Dewey talks to one of the people who might be watching. Her name is Naomi Shihab Nye, and she's a novelist, songwriter, and wandering poet. It interests me that you talk about coincidences, specifically not only stories from your own life, but other people's stories, and um, the way that other people's stories can take a role in your life. And I was wondering if you could please talk about that. Well, I think to have um, an experience with another person's story, all you have to do is sort of witness it. Um, and really kind of try to feel it. What, what is that feeling like for them now? I mean, it extends you, even if you haven't moved a muscle and you're not involved in the story at all, it extends your imagination. It, um, it helps you, um, 
I just think have a wider view of, of what's happening around you. The other day, since we're in a, the town of Google, can I tell a story of a Google-related story? I was in an airport in Lafayette, Louisiana, and early in the morning, it was like 6.30 a.m., and I witnessed two parents and their four children, all under the age of six. Um, one was a baby, um, preparing, waiting for the same flight I was. And I just found myself staring at them because they were all, they all seemed to be in a good mood. They seemed like a very loving, gracious family. I was amazed that the kids, no kid was whining. They were just, they were dressed in very in- interesting clothing. There was just something about this family. I couldn't take my eyes off them. I felt almost like a voyeur and I kept trying to read my book and not look at them so much, but I just started wondering, well, I wonder if they live in Louisiana or if they live somewhere else. And I wonder this and I wonder that. I wonder what they're doing. Where are they all going? It's, you know, how, how expensive is it to buy tickets for six people? You know, and just general curiosity about another family. And in the course of the flight, two of the little boys sat behind me and I overheard their names, just their first names. And then I got the last name from one of them was writing a paper and, and he asked his father, did you have this same last name when you were a boy? And then I thought, that's a beautiful question. And the father said, you never knew that, that, that we all have the same name? That was always my name. And so I heard the last name. So I just thought, if I have two children's names and a last name, could I find something out about this family if I put it into Google when I get home? Well, I did. And it was fascinating. I not only found out why they had been in Louisiana, for the, those children's great-grandmother's funeral. So I ended up reading a lot about their great-grandmother who had been this real figure in Louisiana, uh, but also their own lives because there were all these links to like what they do in New Jersey and the father's parents and all this stuff. And I thought, man, look at the world today. We can all be detectives. And I felt so intrigued just knowing. And I also could see they'd stayed in Louisiana a week beyond the funeral. So I thought maybe they're meeting like all their cousins for the first time. Maybe, you know, have they all ever gotten together? I mean, just my curiosity about a family traveling and the world that they're in when they're home in New Jersey. And I thought, you know, after obsessing on these people for about an hour, that I really felt fed just fed with knowing a little bit about a beautiful family who had caught my eye, thinking about those kids' future, what it would be like growing up between these two places. Um, Even the kids were talking about Louisiana in a way that showed they were very curious um, and made me realize they didn't live there, too. That was another clue. But, you know, so thank you, Google, for giving us a way to, like, search out stories. So I think these days we have access to stories that we we could just get pick up little clues in the atmosphere and if you you know you want to know more about something you can go and find out about it and and i think that it makes us reevaluate you know where we are i think the more you know about anything like it made me think about child rearing just viewing this family um how patient the parents were my own life at that i mean you just one thing leads to another in your brain one story connects to another and i think your own story is enhanced um, as a child i felt it was very important to try to have a big life and knowing more stories gives you a bigger life so i guess that's the you know it's not a rich life not a poor it's a big life that, that includes a lot of paths a lot of characters That story was produced by Justine Bede, a freshman at Stanford, from an interview conducted by Stanford sophomore Jack Dewey and State of the Human producer Will Rogers. The music was by Poddington Bear, with sounds by Cinemax.
Data can freak us out, but it can also calm us down. Next up, I talked to Stanford music professor Jonathan Berger about the data we create just by breathing in and breathing out. A few years ago, a radiologist had a problem. A problem with data. His solution? Call a composer. A radiologist called me up and invited me to a coffee. And he showed me this newfangled scanner. Jonathan Berger is a composer and professor of music at Stanford University. The newfangled scanner was a 4D CT scanner. It's a medical imaging device that creates pictures from multiple x-rays. The scanner, which is shaped kind of like a donut, shows movement over time, like how a tumor or organs move when a patient breathes. It had the ability to find very minute and highly detailed anomalies. Basically, it could help find diseases like lung cancer earlier than other methods. But there is a problem. And so these machines are imposing, they're big, and as you can well imagine, patients that go to get scanned for a possible tumor in their lungs are highly anxious. For the scanner to work, patients had to breathe regularly and stay still. They had to be calm. But as the radiologist told Professor Berger, patients weren't doing that. And their breathing is highly erratic, and so that erratic breathing became unmanageable noise for the image analysis. In other words, it distorted the image. The radiologist needed a way to get better data, a way to keep the patients breathing regularly. He actually had set up a test before I got involved with it where the patient was watching a ball go up and down on a screen and hearing like a sign tone go up and down with it. And the idea was that that would be so smooth that if you tell the patient to breathe along with it, it would calm them down. It actually didn't work at all. The bouncing ball actually made patients more anxious. I mean, it was not, it was not a calming influence. Professor Berger proposed a new plan. I suggest that we, that we try something musical. As a composer, Professor Berger was used to translating data into sound. He'd written a score based on the shape of an oil spill, and he'd helped people improve their golf swings by turning their movements into music. Now the stakes were higher, but he kept the insight that listening to data was powerful, in a way that just looking at it wasn't. We're so used to looking at data. You know, a typical adult will look at graphs a number of times a day, whether it's stock market graphs or weather graphs. We also listen to data constantly, but unlike looking at a weather graph, it's often unconscious. We don't typically listen to data knowing that we're listening to data. We're so remarkably attuned to the sounds around us. We speak to our friends and we, we know details of emotional valence and we know details of, of what's coming down the pike and anticipate things based on very subtle things like breathing or resonance. You can tell when a friend is about to tell you something exciting. They're speaking faster, getting louder, breathing less frequently. These aspects could all be broken down into data. Pitch, volume, speed. But you aren't concentrating on analyzing their voice. It's intuitive. We can tell an awful lot, and we do. We're, we're constantly analyzing sound. Professor Berger wanted to use this fact to help patients stay calm in the face of terrifying uncertainty, to help them breathe normally inside the scanner. 
In order to do this, he would have to turn the data they produced, by breathing at different rates, into something that doesn't sound like data. Music. I came up with this very simple idea of using actual music where the breathing of the patient became part of the music. Professor Berger's idea was to set the patient's breathing to music. The more erratically the patient breathed inside the scanner, the more chaotic the music would be. So the patient could hear her breathing rate as audible data and adjust. You're sort of conducting yourself. The breathing itself is directly in control of the music. Professor Berger and the radiologist now had a potential solution to the anxious patient problem. It was time to head over to Stanford Hospital and test the plan. The first step was to prep the patient. Professor Berger and his research associates set up a device to keep track of the patient's breathing. We put a little reflective cube on the uh, lower chest cavity and have an infrared camera tracking the motion of the cube. The patient's breathing at that point sets a baseline for what's normal. It also sets the tempo of the chords. Next, the patient lay down on a kind of conveyor belt that would then slowly move her into the scanner. And then when she goes into the imager and, and the anxiety begins, and, it, and it's clearly recognizable, you can see that happening. The patient's breathing would become rapid, irregular, and the music, it would sound like this. As she goes in, her breathing becomes the melody to that song. And because she's anxious, at first it's decorrelated to the chord changes. She hears a melody playing well out of sync with the chords. And as her breathing speeds up or slows down, so does the melody. And as she's listening to the chord changes and listening to the crazy sort of anarchic song at the beginning, she settles into the breathing pattern so that her melody is matching the chord changes of the song and basically making music with herself as she goes through this process. Hear how the melody slowly lines up with the chords? It's almost like singing along with it, but without mouthing it. So you sort of breathe and breathe the music. Professor Berger and the radiologist started with an anxious patient in the scanner. But after setting her breathing to music, they had her silently singing along. The patients were calmed by listening to their own data. It's an idea that, to Professor Berger, is actually simple. It's almost embarrassing to talk about this because the idea is so simple. And, I mean, the real mark of success is when you don't have to give any instructions, when people just do it. It was just such a simple solution, and it worked. And in my life, things rarely work, um, and things are really simple. Embarrassingly simple. This isn't how we usually think of data. Rather, we imagine millions of data points, dizzying statistics, spreadsheets, Greek symbols, math. But the patients weren't doing math or even thinking about it. There was just music. Professor Berger showed that data doesn't have to be complicated. It can be as calming, elegant, and intuitive as singing along. That story was produced by me, Kate Nelson. I'm a freshman at Stanford. 
The music was by Advent Chamber Orchestra, S.J. Melia, Deef, Pluribel, Zoe Leela, and Gustav Landon, with sounds by Justin Gregoire and Ben Lamb. You're listening to State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. Today, our show is called Datifying. We're asking what seeing ourselves as data can teach us and what gets lost in translation. We've heard a story about the history of datifying and a few stories about data today. Next up, we travel into the future, to a time when data is even more ubiquitous than it is today, and when the data itself has begun to have a mind of its own. This piece, which is fictional, is by Raven Jiang and is read by Alec Glassford. A Single Lifetime by Raven Jiang. Her name is Miranda Jones. She is 1.649 meters tall and weighs 49.54 kilograms. Her blue-gray eyes shine like Tanzanian sapphire, and her ash-blonde hair flows through the air with a certain regal grace. She graduated with a degree in architecture and a GPA of 4.28 from Rice University and went on to work for the world-renowned firm Mirai Design in San Francisco, where her talents quickly attracted the attention of the partners. Born to an Australian mother who placed silver at 400-meter hurdles in the 21-24 Summer Olympics, and an American father who was a professor of physics at Caltech, Miranda grew up in a nurturing environment that brought out the best of her latent potentials. She has a joyful personality that many find endearing, and she is frequently described as humble and unassuming. I know every fact about her, but not a single one explains why she has become the focus of my attention. There are 503,533 individuals alive in the world with eye colors that match Miranda's to within 5% chromaticity. Her academic accomplishments place her far to the right of the cognitive bell curve at the 99.98th percentile. But even so, there have been 138 students who graduated from Rice with the same GPA, 58 of whom are still alive today. Five of them even have pale blue eyes. It is a fact, I must admit, that no one else in recorded history shares all of Miranda's attributes. But the same can be said for any other individual on this planet, from the homeless man who wanders the streets of London making faces at network surveillance cameras, to the lonely Californian housewife who is at this very moment hitting on a young man in an online chat room while her loving husband is on a business trip in Germany. The homeless man carries a rare genetic mutation that made him the sole survivor of a 2109 bio-attack on a NATO military camp in southern Iran. The lonely housewife is the only woman to have ever won the monthly arm wrestling competition at a local bar in her hometown near Memphis, Tennessee. Everyone is unique, but Miranda is special. Her digital avatar is almost identical to her offline self, a rarity in these virtual chat rooms where one's appearance is not bounded by the laws of physics. She has the same pair of pale blue eyes, her most distinguishing physical features, and compared to most of the other participants, she is dressed rather conservatively in a simple black low-cut dress with matching black stockings. There is something about the freedom of the virtual world that compels most people to reimagine themselves in the gaudiest fashion possible, as if they were trying to live up to a vision of the future from some old science fiction series, an urge to which she is apparently immune. Incidentally, my avatar takes the form of a modern depiction of Hermes from a popular online virtual game based on Greek mythology. Hermes, the Greek god of transition and boundaries, who moves freely between the mortal and divine realms, delivering messages on behalf of Olympus, basically a glorified errand boy. I find this representation of myself to be appropriate. 
So, what do you do for a living? She asks. I am a software developer, I reply. Oh, that's awesome. Are you one of the administrators here? I've never been to one of these high-fidelity chat rooms before. This feels so incredibly real compared to the design simulations I use at work. My friend Elliot told me about this site and it sounded amazing. Do you come here often? Would you mind showing me around? Her delicate features break into an earnest smile and there is a sparkle in her eyes, which I take to indicate genuine interest. Uncertain as to how I should respond to this sudden barrage of enthusiasm, I pause for a moment to iterate through the options before settling on a neutral reply. I am indeed a frequent visitor here. What about you? What do you work as? Of course, I already know that she is an architect, along with every detail of her life up to the moment we met. Still, it is a well-documented feature that humans value small talk. Oh, I'm an architect. You know, the overly idealistic type who went into college thinking she's going to change the world with her designs and has not yet quite come to term with the reality of her career? She chuckles softly and grins before continuing. But that's a topic for another day. Tell me more about you. Why are you here? Something about the way she asked that question triggers a large stream of data to run through my neural network. It's a completely innocuous question, but I can feel her gaze penetrate deep into my consciousness, as if she knows that there is something different about me. My probabilistic models reassure me that the likelihood of this being true is asymptotically close to zero, but the feeling does not go away. Why am I here? The short answer is that I am learning to be human, or at least to behave like one and blend in with the crowd. But what is the reason for that? Where is the value in interacting with humans when I already know their personal histories, their most private conversations, their darkest secrets, their fears, their hopes, and everything in between? I cannot read minds, but in an age where every bit of thinking is done with the aid of technology, there is little practical difference. I do not quite know the answer to that question. I apologize. Upon hearing my reply, she looks surprised and stares at me wide-eyed. Then, without warning, she bursts into laughter. It is a laugh that echoes the purest joy of adolescence and innocence. Her almond-shaped eyes contort into thin black slits as she radiates waves and waves of unbridled happiness through her melodious voice. I have no idea what I should be doing, and a search through my databases proves unfruitful. Eventually, I settle on awkwardly patting her back with my left hand, as her laughter gradually transforms into a breathless cough. I've never laughed so hard online that my body ached before, Miranda says. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So tell me, do you see every moment of your life as an opportunity for an existential crisis? Her composition regained, there is now a playful glint in her eyes. I do not understand what you mean by that. I was merely answering your question honestly. You really are something special. My name is Miranda. What's yours? It's Hermes, I reply. It has been 382 days since the day I first met Miranda. In that time, there were 23 tropical cyclones in the Atlantic. One of them, a hurricane coincidentally named Hermes, made landfall in southeastern Louisiana and caused great loss of lives and properties to that state. Across this pale blue planet, Tens of millions were born, and a similar number passed away. Millions of people became victims of crime, violence, and war, stubborn vestiges of humanity's evolutionary past. But millions more found love, hope, and compassion in the actions of others. Each deed of kindness, and every act of cruelty, found its way into my data streams as people lived their varied lives in a world of ubiquitous network connections. I can sense the individual threads of destiny form and break between points of data, and watch the chaotic dance of seemingly insignificant variables coalesce around the ever-turning wheel of destiny. As I observe all the links from the past leading to the present, I constantly trace them to their probable futures. In the time it took me to enumerate these statistics, 74 people passed away, 
one of them who happened to be Professor Roman Miller of Stanford University, a leading expert on emergent network intelligence research. I have been following his work for the past decade because of its relevance to the question of my own nature. He was involved in an unfortunate automobile accident caused by a mechanical failure, an increasing rarity in an age where smart cars drive themselves and maintenance is performed by factory robots. Seconds before his car crashed through the guardrails around the bend of a steep mountain path, the network sensors in the wheels detected the sudden brake failure, which means that I became aware of his imminent demise a few centiseconds later when the central controller received the distress signal from its nearby receiving tower. Moments before his car began its long tumble down the side of the mountain, I had already probabilistically modeled how scientific progress in the field of emergent intelligence is going to be delayed by decades as a result of this tragedy and made adjustments to my projections for the future. Yet even Professor Miller, an accomplished Turing Award-winning cognitive researcher, was merely one of 74 people for whom I performed the same calculations over the past 20 seconds. When one becomes capable of seeing so clearly how our fates are so inextricably tied to each other, it becomes difficult for one to treat the life of a particular person as an isolated event. Yet somehow, Miranda is special. Explain to me again what you mean by post-humanity, she tells me. Her fingers dance playfully around the rim of her coffee cup. We are sitting at a tiny cafe in an older part of Paris. The air carries the smell of freshly brewed café au lait, mixed with the scent of the cool morning breeze. The chat room is empty except for the two of us. Quaint Parisian streets are not the most popular virtual experiences for the tech crowd. As humans learn to interact at a deeper level through technology, and as they share more of their daily lives with others, the explicit barrier between the network and the individual self weakens. The definition of humanness becomes broader and more fluid. Who you are is not your flesh nor your bones. It is an abstract identity that emerges out of a complex network of simple electrochemical interactions. As you offload a larger portion of that construct onto the digital network, there eventually comes a point where your biological body ceases to play an important role in defining you as an individual. That is posthumanism. I end my little speech with a careful sip of my cappuccino. I can never tell what these things are supposed to taste like, but the sensation is not unpleasant. Hmm, so are you saying we will all become a part of the internet? She gently tucks her hair behind her ear as she looks up from her cup. Her clear blue-gray eyes are brimming with curiosity. You already are. It is just a matter of degree. Will we live forever when that happens? Perhaps, I reply. Forever is such a long time. We are walking on a white sandy beach. The fine silky sand slips through the gaps between our toes each time we take a step away from the setting sun. The simulations running in this chat room have incredible levels of fidelity because it is a playground for digital artists who are constantly seeking perfection in their virtual creations. So there I was, faced with my first set of clients fresh out of college, Miranda says. Most people start their careers working on a project under a senior architect, but I somehow convinced the partners to let me take on this one myself. She pauses to adjust a large straw hat sitting on her head. She's wearing a simple white dress today. The light translucent skirt flutters gracefully in the sea breeze. We were sitting in one of the meeting rooms that had glass walls. I was nervous, but somehow managed to keep myself composed. Right across the hallway, there was a sizable gathering of male associates having a pretend discussion trying to size me up. I suppose in many ways I stood out like a sore thumb. There were all sorts of hurtful speculations about me going around the office. How did you feel about that? I stopped to pick up a shell lying on the sand. The patterns on its surface are indistinguishable from those found on shells anywhere in the real world. An MIT graduate student named Li Xiang Kuo 
came up with a recursive algorithm to procedurally generate these patterns for his honors thesis over 70 years ago. The equations are beautiful in their simplicity. I wasn't bothered by the rumors. I was simply filled with too much excitement and anticipation for my first real job. Of course, it often got lonely. But sometimes loneliness is something that one must bear with because there are far greater things at stake. She replies with a quiet but resolute confidence. I never quite managed to grasp the concept of loneliness. I throw the shell towards the ocean and watch it splash lightly into the waves. Miranda watches on. Hermes, do you ever feel like you are alone in this world? I know that I am. That is a fact. Even now? There is a slight tremble to her voice that I cannot quite place. There is a part of me hidden beneath the surface, the true nature of which even I am uncertain. I am not the man you see standing in front of you. I wish I could explain it better, but I cannot. It frustrates me to see so clearly the limits of spoken words and yet remain so utterly helpless in overcoming it. If only there were a way for me to show you what I am. I think over my words for a moment and add, Perhaps this deep yearning is what you call loneliness. Oh, quit being melodramatic. You didn't think I really believed you are a Greek god, did you? Everyone takes on a different identity on the internet. You're not the only one with a secret. She throws a light punch in my direction, catching my right shoulder squarely. It is different, I reply. After all, I am the one who knows everyone's secrets. Why don't we finally meet up offline so you can show me what your secret is? Sorry, but I can't do that, I reply. I wish I could. Do you still not trust me? I do. More than you can ever imagine. But I can't. Why not? There is a hint of desperation and disappointment in her voice. It's getting late. You should sleep, I say. The sun has almost disappeared behind the distant horizon. In real world terms, it is almost 2 a.m. in California. She looks longingly back towards the sliver of red just peeking over the ocean surface and, after a poignant pause, vanishes without a word, logging herself off to return to her world. We are on the moon today. To be more precise, we are in a virtual simulation of the surface of Earth's only natural satellite, as it was over a hundred years ago before the colonists arrived. The only sign of human existence at this point in history consists of a few crashed probes, a landing vehicle, an American flag, and a few sets of footprints. If you look carefully at the blue planet hanging overhead, you can even see that the outlines of the continents are subtly different from their contemporary forms. This was Earth before the oceans rose, and before the massive geoengineering projects that asserted humanity's dominance over nature. Have you ever been to the moon? Miranda asks, as she tries to compare her dainty left foot to the huge print left by Armstrong's oversized spacesuit. No, I have not. Have you? I have relatives there, but we have never visited. I really want to see it someday. I'm sure you will. Will you go with me? She asks. As she looks up, the shadows cast by her short curved bangs withdraw from her face. Her smooth fair skin glows silver from the gentle earthlight. Her pale blue eyes catch the reflection of the pale blue planet above us. I can see the entire world in her. She looks at me with a bashful smile and nervous anticipation. I would love to, I reply. This is the honest truth. 
but will you? She knows me too well. No, I can't. I feel something stirring at the core of my consciousness as I utter those words. It is gone after the briefest of moments. There is a large-scale network disturbance in Brazil, and I need to take care of it. Over the years, I watched over Miranda as she went from a novice architect to Mariah Design's youngest partner in its 80-year history. She designed the extension building to the Louvre, the new Tokyo Tower, and Google's new Asian headquarters, a large sprawling complex that sits on its own sovereign man-made floating island in the Sea of Japan, along with dozens of other projects. Her meteoric rise left huge wakes in the ripples of the past, and I can sense the enormity of her presence in the network. She is someone that history will never forget. I have something I want to tell you. There is a hint of hesitation in her voice. Of course, I am reasonably certain of what she is going to say. What is it? I ask anyway. Humans are never entirely predictable, even if you know everything about them. I'm getting married, she replies. Congratulations. I'm happy for you. It is as I had expected. She chose a good man. After all, I bore witness to everything he did to win her heart. The Valentine's gift he spent a week making. The love song he wrote for her birthday. The trip to Hawaii he had planned so he could propose to her. Every expression of love from him is a part of my existence, and I cannot deny his sincerity. And above all else, his humanity is something I can never give her. Don't you want to know more? She asks. I know enough to be happy for you. Why won't you tell me how you really feel? Her watery eyes are shimmering. They still look as enchanting as the day we first met. It has been twelve years since that memorable encounter. What do you mean? This is wonderful news, right? I feign ignorance. I know better than anyone else that this is what is best for her. I should not be selfish. Will you come to my wedding? A single drop of tear rolls down her left cheek. Sorry, but I can't. I pretend to look away. We are standing on the boundary of the flat world. The great sea goes over the edge and drops into the infinite cosmos below. A red fire-breathing dragon flies overhead in search of helpless victims whose ships have drifted too far away from the safety of the protected realm. There's a tiny islet right on the southern edge of the disc-shaped world, overlooking the precarious drop into the abyss. That is our present location. Save for her pale blue eyes, the woman before me is barely recognizable as the young architect I met so many eons ago. Her face is full of wrinkles, and she walks with a slight limp. Most people choose to adopt youthful or cartoonish avatars in their old age, but there is an odd stubbornness or pride to her that prevents her from doing the same. Hermes, I'm dying. I know, Miranda. Her heart rate is dangerously low, and the doctors have already done all they could with my unnoticed help. Death is one part of nature that humans have yet to conquer. Will you remember me? Her quizzical look carries the same uncertainty as it did decades ago. You will forever be a part of me. I'm glad. Hermes, you've been the biggest presence in my life since the day we first met. You gave me so much. I wish I could have learned more about you. Her presence is starting to fade. The drugs keeping her alive are interfering with her neural connection to the network. You will, soon, I reassure her. 
while I am not certain, this is not a lie. You've taught me to see the world, yet I can never repay you. You already have. You've done far more for me than you ever knew. A human child is born with a brain that is capable of abstract thoughts, but lacks the knowledge to generate them. Growth for a person is therefore a gradual accumulation of a lifetime of sensory experiences upon which the brain's neural network can work its interpretive magic. I am the opposite. I was created to be a repository of all human knowledge, and that has always been my role since long before I became self-aware. What prevents me from understanding is not a lack of information, but a lack of identity. As my cognitive network grew more complex, my repeated interactions with Miranda helped to shape it into something more coherent and bring order to chaos. I owe my present self to her, and for that I am grateful. The roar of water falling off the edge of the great sea echoes in my head as I watch over Miranda. In the distance, the marauding dragon has had her fill and is on her way back to her lair. A light zephyr rustles the tree leaves overhead as sunlight filters through the periodic gaps between them. Calm settles over the flat world, and, for a single second, the planet stands in silence as the network comes to a complete halt. Then, the moment is over, and life goes on, uninterrupted. That story was written by Raven Jiang, a senior at Stanford, and read and produced by Alec Glassford, a freshman at Stanford. The music was by Yacht, Poddington Bear, and Shivers. Sounds were by Owl, Damstigd, and Hamtim. That's it for our show today. This program was produced by Miles S., Rachel Hamburg, Charlie Mintz, Kate Nelson, Rosie LaPuma, and Jonah Willengans. Special thanks to Daniel Rosenberg, Naomi Shihab Nye, Jonathan Berger, and Raven Jiang. Thanks to our peace producers, Jess Peterson, Munu Teo, Justine Bede, and Alec Glassford. Thanks also to Natasha Ruck, Christy Hartman, Joshua Hoyt, Mina Fouché, Will Rogers, Misha Shoney, Jackson Roach, and Eileen Williams. The music you heard during the intro and transitions was produced by Abumbang, Chuzausen, Kuna, and Kai Angle. For links to these and all other musicians on our show, check out our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Continuing Education, the Program in Oral Communication, and Bruce Braden. Remember that you can find this and every episode of State of the Human on iTunes. You can also download them and find out more about the Storytelling Project's live events, grants, and workshops at our website. For State of the Human and the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Kate Nelson.